Hey, we have a special guest. You're all special, but this person is just a tad bit more special. And he is uh, invited to our class today by the Rushes, who are members of the church, Mark and Michelle. Thank you for doing it. And this is Dennis Paul, and he is a state representative. Dennis, could you come join me? Sorry to interrupt the conversation. This is Dennis Paul. Would you welcome this man? Thank you very much. So uh, Dennis is a state representative in what district? House District 129, uh, which governs uh, this, where we're at. Is that in this district? We go from Pearland uh, over in Green Tea area. All the way following the creek, all the way over to uh, Seabrook and up to Laporte, so all of Clear Lake, Nassau Bay, Webster, all those communities are all part of mine. South side. This is this is home territory. You came to the right place. Yes, I think so. We've got good support here over the years. Uh, I'm a native Houstonian, native to this area. Went to South Houston High School, uh, so um, been been here my whole life. We are glad to have you. And you've been serving as a state rep for how long? I'm in my uh, sixth year, so I've been th- elected to three terms. Uh, actually, Ed Thompson's my desk mate, so we have to sit next to, to Ed the whole time. But, um, and, then that, and before that, I was eight years on our state Republican executive committee working to get good Christian conservatives elected. That was our goal. And so eight years of that, 20, 20 years worked in as a precinct chair in my neighborhood working to get people elected. And uh, you're married. Your dear wife is not with us. Today. Tell us about your family. Sure. I am married. We have one daughter. Uh, my wife, Eliza, uh, I, I'm an engineer. Let me get real clear. I'm the only engineer in the entire legislature. So only one in that. My wife is also an engineer. And our daughter just graduated University of Texas with her master's. Uh, she's an engineer as well. So we're all engineers. Uh-huh. We argue. <laughs> but my, uh, my wife is, um, is now uh, just recently promoted. She's the district engineer for all of the tech stop for the whole Houston region. She's got eight counties. And we always laugh that her district's a lot bigger than mine. She's got about six million people <laughs> she takes care of. And uh, my wife is the first woman to ever run a metropolitan area for TxDOT. And uh, my wife is an immigrant from Hong Kong. And um, her family uh, had to flee communist China. Her brother was actually born in China. And they got out of China with nothing but the shirt on their back went to Hong Kong, recreated a whole new life for themselves, had three girls, and then a big gap, a fourth girl. And so my wife grew up in Hong Kong. And then uh, when Thatcher gave Hong Kong back to the communists, you remember in the, in the mid-'80s, uh, her family said, all right, we're going to the United States where we know we can be free. And so they all moved to the United States. My wife had gotten a scholarship. She, she finished her last couple of years of high school in England, and then uh, got her undergraduate degree in England, and they said, we're moving to the United States. She came, went to the University of Houston, where she met me. Uh, my wife and I said, we're both cougars. And, and um, we both got our master's from the University of Houston. And then our, our daughter said she wanted to get a master's, too, to match us. So Really nice. Now, uh, you're up for re-election, yes, sir. so this is a challenging time. Can you tell us... What's personally important to you as a state representative? Well, first thing, I want to make sure that whatever we do uh, is going to meet our values of, of what we do. And I will tell you this is uh, true. I pray continuously that God gives me the, the wisdom to, to vote the way he wants us to do 
and what was good for him. So I constantly asked for his guidance. Uh, and so working for those things that we know that our culture wants are going to be very important to me, and those are a priority to us. The other things that we're working on very hard is uh, flooding. As the only engineer, uh, I take this very seriously as a responsibility to lead on. So we've been leading on what we're going to do for flooding and how the state can work to have flooding, as well as working on a coastal barrier project that we have been working on to get that done to protect all of Galveston Bay. So those Christian values that we all hold dear as Christians, I want to make sure and get done working on things that I know that we want to get done in our state to protect us and lead us going forward and whatever we can do to grow and grow our economy to make things happen so we can all prosper and continue this Texas miracle that we've been living under. Thank you, Dennis. You mean a lot to us. We appreciate you and people like you who serve the community so well. And we would be pleased to pray for you now if that's okay. That's great for me. I, the, the prayers we always need. And I can tell you, I feel the prayers, especially when we're running. So I, I know a lot of y'all, we all pray for the president. And I can tell you, I can guarantee you that he feels them because I have felt prayer that people are praying for us. And I know that they have. And I've, I, so I know that it works. And thank you very much. And I would love to have that more than anything. Thank you. Join me. Let's pray together. Well, our Father, we bow before you, and in so doing, acknowledge you to be the highest authority and commander-in-chief, and we thank you for institutions like government. It's your idea. It is a good idea. It's done better by some than others, for sure, but the concept is really wonderful. It's a divine institution. We thank you for those who have run for political office and who you have seen fit to position and give a platform to to serve the community we thank you for state representative paul and for his service to this community over these years we pray oh god that you who have brought him thus far would chart his future what's best oh god for him and for the community please have your will in his life and his wonderful wives daughters thank you for this wonderful family and for the great convictions you have given to this good man. We pray for his well-being, strength, and energy as he expends energy in serving us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. you. you now, there are some things here. I got some uh, cards if y'all want some additional information or if anybody would like to let me have an address, I'll make sure and get your yard sign. I have something there if y'all uh, would love to support. So thank you very much, and I'll hang around, and I, I want to hear what, the, what this man has to preach about. So that'll be exciting. Uh, but I'll be here and be glad to talk or give out any other information. Thank you so much. God bless you, too. Thanks for being with us, Representative Paul. Thank you. We feel bad about the desk partnership with, you know, what are you going <laughs> to Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'd be interested in seeing what your refrigerator looks like. You know, three engineers in the family, I'm sure everything is in its spot and so on. God bless you. Thank you for coming to be with us. Thank you, Mark, for inviting uh, this wonderful man to be with us. We appreciate it. Um, let me prime the pump a little bit. There are covenants in the Bible, several they're different than a contract. They have a relational basis to them. 
When God enters into covenant with a specific people group, it's his way of saying, I desire intimacy. It's like a marital covenant. God, on his own initiative, has done this throughout biblical history. So there are manifold covenants in the Bible, but two in particular are overarching covenants in the Bible, and you know of them. What are they called? Would anyone like to share these two major covenants in the Bible? What do you think? What do you think, Ryan? Say again? Uh, um, Kind of right, but I'm thinking even in broader terms. Anybody here? Raise your hand so I could see you. Yes, that's it. Oh, see, I, I can see you're sheepish because you think I'm setting you up for, for... No, no, just the old covenant, which presumes that there's a new covenant. Um, which of the two covenants, based upon what you know of them, are you? would you prefer to be under? Would you prefer to be under the old covenant or the new covenant? Yeah, so that's pretty unanimous here. This is a democracy. The new covenant got voted in. Yay. Why? What's wrong with the old covenant so that there would be a landslide response in favor of the new? What's wrong with the old covenant? Any thoughts about that? What do you think, Mona? Uh, Okay, so under the old covenant, you have to raise your hand. And, you know, it's, it's based on the law. And the law is, go ahead, Mona. You cannot do it. Hmm. So that's a bit of a problem. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it sort of reveals what is inherently wrong with us. When it says don't, we do. When it says do, we don't. When you think of the Old Covenant, you think of how many commandments in particular? Ten. Uh, On the other hand, if you were to do a good, careful study of the Old Testament, you'll find that there are offshoots to the Ten Fundamental Commandments so that there are at least 613 commandments. On a good day, how many of those are you obeying and complying with? And so under the Old Covenant, you're really not getting good grades with God, are you? Nobody's getting a passing grade. The Old Covenant is a reflection of God's morality and ethics, and so it's inherently good, but it cannot change our nature, which is to sin. It can reveal our nature, but it cannot erase it. So the Old Covenant is more like a mirror, and the New Covenant more like an eraser. You look into the mirror and you say, oh, I have a smudge on my face, but the mirror is not designed to remove it, just to reveal it. The new covenant, on the other hand, is what can clean us up. It affects a change from the inside out, and the old covenant really was external only. Uh, who, who brought the old covenant to ancient Israel? Remember what his name was? Moses. And he was in an elevated area when God gave this to him. What was it called? Mount Sinai. So the Jewish people were gathered around the base of the mountain waiting to receive these commandments. And when Moses brought them down, if you recall, they said to God, what you say we will do. How long did that last? Yes, he's not so long. So they were persuaded that they, in partnership with the old covenant, could 
achieve right standing with God. And he knew they couldn't, but he knew they had to be persuaded against their own self-confidence and arrogance, their own confidence in the flesh. And so the old covenant was designed to point out their unbridled inclination to sin. Now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews, which by definition, you see this from the title, is uh, is a uh, is designed for a people group known as the Hebrews, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. We don't know who authored it, but we know the recipients, Jews, in particular three groups of Jews. Some of these who received what the writer had to say were absolutely believers in, they wouldn't have said Jesus, they would have said Yeshua, the Messiah. So they believed on him just as you and I do. They were absolutely converted, new creatures in Christ, in Messiah, one group. The second group were just as certain that they didn't believe in him. So like now, some accepted, some rejected. They had their ethnicity in common. They had their religious background. But at a certain point, they took different directions. Some embraced Christ, others rejected him. Now there's a third group in this midst of Hebrews, Those are ones who professed some kind of identification with Jesus the Messiah. They professed, and they were part of the assembly. They sang the songs and maybe even put money in the offering plate if there was such a thing in those days, but they never were truly born anew. They had some kind of connection to Christ, but it was superficial. It was organizational. They joined the club, but never by faith were personally joined to Jesus the Messiah. Now, the writer of this letter, Hebrews, is deeply concerned because some in this group of Hebrews are now being tempted to go back under the old ways. In their case, it was Judaism, the old covenant. And the reason why they were tempted to go back under the old covenant is that it was a time of persecution for identity with Christ. And that really proves the stuff of which we're made when we have to pay something for believing in Jesus. And so in this case, some were not willing to pay the price. And so they were being tempted back under this old covenant, which you have so accurately said uh, is not suited to their needs. And so the writer of Hebrews has an objective, and it is to discourage them, even during times of persecution, from turning their back on Christ. So he's made the point that Jesus is better. In fact, we can term this the letter of better. And he started out by pointing out in chapter 1, in those early chapters, Jesus is better than angels. He's better than prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than all things. And here now we're in chapter 8 today. Uh, The writer is going to prove that Jesus offers a better covenant than any previous high priest could have offered. Jesus offers, in Hebrew we call it the Brit Hadashah, the covenant, the new one. Jesus offers a new and better covenant. Therefore, why abandon him to go back under the inferior old covenant? Now, for a covenant to take place, it had to be mediated by a priest. And the priest who mediated the old covenant, he was of the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. 
Do you remember what he, the first high priest of Israel, remember what his name was? Aaron. So Aaron is the one who mediated this first old covenant. And in order to have a new and better covenant, one we could live by, you see, we need a priest to mediate it. And so the people may be asking the question, how do we find this newer, better high priest? And in answer to the question, now we see Hebrews chapter 8, the writer gives this answer, verse 1. Now, the main point, so if you're wondering what the writer's main point is in writing Hebrews, wonder no more, he's going to spell it out. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. Look no further, says the writer. We have a better covenant, and we even have the priest to mediate it. We have such a high priest. Do you know what his name is? Yeah, that's Jesus. Look no further, says the writer, as Aaron mediated the first covenant. We have a high priest greater than Aaron to mediate this better covenant. We have such a high priest. Well, what is he doing now? Who has taken his seat. That's what it says in verse 1. This is a very significant kind of metaphor. It doesn't mean Jesus got tired and sat for rest. It meant he sat to indicate completion of his task. In the tabernacle, which preceded the temple of old, when the priest and Levites did their ministrations and offered sacrifices for the people's sin, you'd see a lot of furnishings there, but not a seat. (laughs) Because no high priest ever could sit down because no high priest ever finished the task. There'd be a long line, often from morning to night, of penitent people. They've sinned, and now they're bringing their special livestock, which was money in the bank in those days, uh, bulls and cows and all kinds of unblemished lambs. And they would come up to the priest who would instruct them to put their hands on this animal and repeat a Hebrew prayer. They would say, oh, God, I have sinned against you. Please accept the shed blood of this innocent living being in my place. And the priest they put their the person would put his or her hands on this animal as if to identify with its imminent death, and then the priest would cut its throat. Can you imagine the sounds and smells of it all? We're talking about thousands of animals being slaughtered. They make gruesome noises, and then they smell. And the flow of the blood would go from the elevated temple precincts down into a valley which exists today. It's called the Kidron Valley. Josephus, the Jewish historian, even records that the water flowing through the Kidron Valley would turn red because there would be such a volume of blood pouring down from the temple precincts. It was an ugly scenario, and that's the idea. Sin, in the eyes of God, is very ugly and distasteful. Not to us. We're inclined in its direction. It's something in us. It's our sin nature. We like it. God hates it. 
And so the smells and the sounds were all designed to depict the grotesqueness of sin and what it cost to cover it, to atone for it. It wasn't a pretty picture at all. And those priests could never sit down because the whole population of Israel would regularly have to get in line in order to bring their animal so that there could be atonement for sin. And so the priest's job was never finished and therefore he could never sit. But when the far better high priest, Jesus, was impaled on a cross, remember the three words he uttered? It is finished. Those words were never uttered by any priest under the old former covenant. Only Jesus was able to utter those words, it is finished. Because the uh, sacrifice he offered is so complete, so flawless, so adequate, so acceptable, so total, that there need be no longer any sacrifices beyond the one he offered. He uh, met the prerequisite for being the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God because he's the only one who never sinned. Even the priests of old, before they took your sacrifice to atone for your sin, had to render sacrifices to atone for their own sin. But Jesus never had to. For though human and fleshed, he was so without sin. That's where the commonality between he and I breaks. He's the only sinless one. So on the divine side, he's referred to as the son of God. On the human side, he is the son of man. He identifies with humankind. Nobody could satisfy the requirements. No one is the only begotten son of the father with whom he is well pleased. And therefore, what Jesus did absolutely finished the requirement uh, for our sins to be atoned for. And therefore, only he could say, it is finished. So he's seated. And what exactly is he doing? Well, verse 2, look, we're really making progress. Verse 2, he's serving as a minister. Where? In the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So preceding the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is the historic, biblical, age-old capital of Israel. When President Trump had our embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, he's simply recognizing what is historically and biblically obvious. That is, for 3,000 years, the capital of Israel. No president preceding him has ever followed through on what's called the Jerusalem Embassy Act, which was, is a piece of legislation. Every president prior to President Trump exercised a loophole. For six months, they could put the move on hold uh, if national security interests warranted it. And so that's given Democrat and Republican presidents the option for years now to put on hold the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Every sovereign state has a right to choose the locale of its embassy. Why not Israel? We would be up in arms. We 
Americans, if some foreign interest said, I don't recognize Washington, D.C. as your capital, we would say, hang it on your beak. We're not looking for you to approve. We're a sovereign state. Well, why not Israel? So anyway, before a temple stood in Israel, it was preceded by a kind of a movable tent, which served the same purpose as the, the temple. It's called a tabernacle. There, God said, I'll meet with you. There you'll worship me, and there you'll offer sacrifice for your sin. Uh, The tabernacle was housed in a place called Shiloh, or Shiloh, right outside of Jerusalem for approximately 336 years before Solomon built the temple, first temple in Jerusalem. When we go to Israel, we oftentimes go to Shiloh, and you can see the very site where the tabernacle was. Stood. Now, this text, verse 2, is telling us Jesus is ministering in a sanctuary, a tabernacle of a different sort, one not pitched by humankind, but no, one pitched by God himself, as if to say, as if to imply, the earthly tabernacle and temple, they just foreshadow and point to an ultimate heavenly reality. And it's that ultimate reality where Jesus, the high priest, serves. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to do what? Well, to offer both gifts and sacrifices, see, on behalf of the people. So it is necessary that this high priest, that's talking about Jesus, also have something to offer. What is the offering offered by Jesus, the high priest? His blood. His own life. Now, even if a high priest of old desired to offer his blood, it would be of no Efficacy, because his blood is tainted by sin and corruption, just like ours is, but not Jesus. If you were to guess at the color of sin, my guess is you would say black. But if there is a color to sin, the Bible says it's scarlet. (laughs) Isaiah says, though your sins are as scarlet, that's a deep red color. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Isn't it interesting that the redness, the scarlet nature of the blood of Jesus is exactly what is required in order to atone for, cover up the scarlet nature of our sin. And because of the absolute acceptability and perfection of what he had to offer, he did not need to continue to offer it. Truly, his offering of atonement was finished. And what exactly is he doing now? Well, you read about this last week, I think, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save. We use that expression quite a bit, we Christians. I'm saved. Are you saved? I've been saved. I became, you know, this is good. But sometimes we can overuse it and miss the obvious. Saved from what? Well, this may surprise you. The answer is saved from God himself. Why? Well, he's intensely, uncompromisingly holy. Therefore, he hates sin. Again, we don't. We're quite comfortable with it. But God is not. He's repulsed by it. And sin uh, invites his holy indignation or his wrath. 
If you wonder what you're saved from, it's from the wrath of God. You might say, I'm saved for heaven. You're right. But you're saved, more importantly, from the wrath of God. In fact, the scriptures say, apart from Christ, the wrath of God already abides on those who are non-believers. So that's what Jesus saved us from. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able also to save, but for how long? The kind of temporary salvation or atonement offered under the old covenant was just that temporary. Well, Hebrews 7.25 says something else. Therefore, he's able to save forever. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. So not Baptists, not Methodists or Lutherans, not Catholics. No, no, no. Those who draw near to the Father through Jesus the Son are saved forever. That isn't church membership that saves. <coughs> it isn't the doing of even good deeds, because you can't do enough that's good. The only thing that could save us from the wrath of God is the sacrifice of Jesus. And therefore, when people by faith draw near to the otherwise unreachable Father... Through Jesus the Son, it says he saves them forever. Now, how could he save them forever? It's because he possesses eternality. His high priestly reign doesn't come to an end as it did with Aaron. Aaron was born, lived, and died, and was buried. Jesus was born, lived, died, was buried, but then rose up from death and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and because of his foreverness, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. How does he do it? Well, Hebrews 7.20, Ryan, you're a good man. I would like to show you. Hey, come here for a second. Come over here. Look at this. I got like a gallon. But you know what I should do, Ryan? I should drink it. Let's have a drink. Come here. Drink. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. I forgot to do that. Thank you for doing that. Ryan's a good man. You know why Ryan did that? He's tired of hearing me talk. <laughs> Drink this and stop talking. <clears throat> What'd you say, Ryan? I didn't want you to talk too bad. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I do it for sympathy. <laughs> He's able to save forever those who draw near to him. Why? Hebrews 7.25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You become a Christian, but you still sin. That's the way it is. The accuser of the brethren, his name is Satan. He goes before the father. He says, look at your son, look at your daughter. She sinned, he sinned. Jesus, the son, says, Father, that's true. Sin is sin. But I suffered and died for that one's sin. And that one has drawn near to you through me. That one has accepted my sacrifice. And the father, the ultimate judge, picks up the gavel and strikes it and says, case dismissed. The accuser of the brethren no longer has a case against us because of Jesus, the advocate, who always lives to make intercession for them. 
That's why we can believe in verses like this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means self-condemnation. Got to fight that. And that means the evil one's condemnation. I'm not encouraging sin. I'm just encouraging the right response to it. When we sin, we don't beg for forgiveness because we already have it. We thank God for forgiving us. We thank him for the totality of his substitutionary atonement. We accept the acquittal that the Father pronounces upon us. It's not based on our merits, promises, or anything like that. It's based on just what we read. He always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews is making the case, would you turn away from him? (laughs) Who are you going to go to? Show me a better high priest. Show me a better covenant. There is no better. Now, verse 4, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why not? If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? What would you say? Well said. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He couldn't even serve at the earthly tabernacle as a priest, you see. So every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. You know this? Aaron's particular subgroup and his sons became the priests, the high priests. But Jesus was from a different tribe. So it says if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Under the old covenant, the law, there was a priestly caste who served. And what did they do? Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what is a shadow? A shadow is nothing. A shadow has no independent existence. You cannot see a shadow. In order for there to be a shadow, there has to be the presence of something or someone more substantive. A more substantive thing casts a shadow. Why, the writer is saying, therefore, would you go back to the shadow? The shadow has no meaning, no essence, no substance apart from the ultimate reality. The Old Testament priesthood, the Old Covenant, the temple, the tabernacle, all the ceremonial laws, all this kind of stuff, that's just a shadow. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. You may not know this, but when Moses was called up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, he came down with two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and they were inscribed in stone. But that's not all he came down with. He came down with specific instructions with regard to the construction and furnishings of the temple. So one item in it is called a menorah or a candelabra, seven-branched. You can read in Exodus, I think, chapter 25. It's almost tedious reading because with such specificity, the design of just that one item is spelled out by God. Why is God, is he like an interior, is he a divine interior decorator or something? No. He knew these copies of things are a shadow of ultimate heavenly realities, the heavenly tabernacle, the 
heavenly furnishings, the heavenly temple in which the great high priest Jesus serves. And so he's telling these people who are tempted to go back to the old system, why do you want this shadow when all that they did was point us to ultimate (coughs) heavenly realities? And so it goes on to say in verse 6, now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also, look, the mediator of a better covenant. You know this. You rightly indicated you'd rather be under the new covenant any day than under the old. It's been enacted on better promises. Now, um, if the first covenant, verse 7, had been faultless, there would be no occasion, no need for a second. So God entered into covenant with one people group on earth, the Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not an editorial comment. That's an indisputable fact. The old covenant was with the Jews. How'd they do? Really bad. They began to violate it quickly. I'm sure you would agree God would be justified, therefore, in replacing the Jews. They are guilty as charged. They are lawbreakers. It would be understandable for God to say, therefore, I gave you a shot. I distinguished you. From all the other people groups on earth, I entered into covenant marriage with you. Uh, I'm divorcing you now. I've had it with you. I'm replacing you with another group of people. Understandable. But he didn't do it. God did not replace Israel. He replaced the covenant with Israel. Why is that important? Well, because as God is with the Jews, so too he is with yous. So meaning if the Jews' sin got to a point where it was greater than God's mercy and grace, then you're next. Because historically, the church has not been much better. If God finally said, my grace has its limits, my mercy has been exceeded by your sin, I'm through with you, then you are in a very shaky spot because he could be through with you, members of the church, next. That's why it's so important to be right about how God responds to Israel. As a Jewish guy, I'm not entirely objective. But still, I think you'll find what I'm sharing with you just flows directly from the text. God does not replace Israel. He replaces the covenant with Israel. We call it the new covenant. You may think the new covenant is with you. Not true. There is no covenant in the Bible except that it be made with Israel. Not one. Does that mean you can't get in on the new covenant? Oh, it doesn't mean that at all. You can. How? You get in on the new covenant by being grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree. Isn't that what it says in Romans chapter 11? What's the olive tree? It's a very Jewish tree. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, it says you're wild by nature. It's not natural for you to be part of this olive tree, but you've been grafted in by your faith in Jesus. I'm emphasizing this because people would say when a Jew accepts Jesus, he ceases to be Jewish. You, you, You got it wrong. Or when a Jew accepts Jesus, he is no longer Jewish. Now he's a Christian. Not exactly right. When a Jew accepts Jesus, that Jew is doing what's very natural, just turning to his or her own Messiah. 
When a Gentile accepts Jesus, that's unnatural. You're joining with the rich root of the olive tree, which is quite Jewish. So the church, which historically has turned its back on the Jews, is missing the whole doggone point. (laughs) The new covenant is only made with the Jews. And by faith, anyone could get in on it. Now, how do I know this? Because before Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, hundreds of years before that, it was introduced through a Jewish prophet named Jeremiah. These are not Rothberg's words here. So if I'm offending you, uh, you may be offended by the truth (laughs) Uh, because I'm just sharing you the text here. I'm going to show you here that the writer of Hebrews now quotes directly from Jeremiah. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verses 31 to 34. Here's what it says, beginning at verse 8. For finding fault with them, God found fault with Israel, for sure. What does he do? Does he replace Israel? No. Look. For finding fault with them, he says, and now the writer invokes a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31. Here's what it says. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. With who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. No, no. Not only is he not replacing Israel, He's actually replacing the covenant with Israel. Well, what's this new covenant going to be like? Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they didn't continue in my covenant. And I didn't care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. He didn't replace Israel. He's replaced the covenant with Israel. And so it says in Romans 11, there'll be a day when all Israel will be saved. Does that mean every Jew by virtue of their Jewishness? No. It means every Jew who responds to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, just as you have, will be saved. Today, when you think of my people, Jewish people, you think of unbelief, ones who don't believe in Jesus. There will come a day when the national character of Jewish people moves from unbelief to belief. Folks, the 144,000 in the final book of the Bible, who do you think they are? Those are not Southern Baptists. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, which tells me God's not finished with the Jews yet, and neither should you or I be. And so this is the new covenant to replace the old Under the old covenant, the Jews said, I will. But God knew all along, no, they won't. He also knew they can't. They won't obey because they can't obey. Under the new covenant, God says, I will. Let me show you. Verse 7, I will effect a new covenant. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds. Verse 10. I will write them on their hearts. Verse 10, again, I will be their God. Verse 12, 
I will be merciful. Verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. Now that's the difference between the old and new. Under the old, I will do my best, which is not so good. Under the new, your best falls short. Under the new, I will. I will give you not tablets of stone. I will inscribe my law on the tablets of your heart. I'll change you from the inside out. If you're a Christian, you know this to be true. Something happened to you when you accept Jesus. He took up his abode in your life. He sent his very presence, his spirit in you. And that's changed your values, your outlooks, given you new inclinations. It's good to come to church and hear a good preacher now and then. But really, it's God who's able to change you from the inside out. He's inscribed his ways, his laws on your heart and mine. The Ten Commandments external to us could not change our stony heart. Therefore, God did a marvelous work of indwelling us with his very, very spirit. His spirit didn't indwell people under the old covenant. Uh, Under the new covenant, since Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came in a new and fresh way. So though I personally have never seen God nor heard him audibly, still his presence is as real as if I did. He's taken up his abode in my life. You've experienced this. Now, though you still have an inclination to sin, it's not quite as easy. You feel miserable over it. Well, that's God in you, lovingly making you to feel miserable. You see how he's written his law on your hearts and mine. Under the new covenant, it's Jesus saying, I will intercede for you. I sat down. I finished the work of atoning for your sin. Now your job, if you have any, is to accept it. Fight the inclination to fight me. I have an intent to join your iniquity with my mercy. And if you need evidence of it, look at the Jews. There's no earthly explanation for the existence of Jews today. And yet Israel, which is smaller than New Jersey, is thriving. How could it be from the ashes of the Holocaust, uh, the modern state of Israel would have grown and developed to the extent it has today? How could it be if God didn't keep his word, if God didn't match Israel's sin with his mercy? Now, the beauty of this is not for you to become enamored with Jews and Israel. This is to become enamored with the God of Israel. His grace is greater than all our sin. Where sin abounds, the scripture says, his grace superabounds. You say, prove it, and I will. Two words, the Jew. Uh, Babylonian, Assyrian, great empires have come and gone. The Third Reich has come and gone. Why are there Jews today? Six million perished in the Holocaust, but six million survived. How in the world did that happen? Except God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, if that's true of very guilty, sinful, spiritually ungrateful people, my people, Why is it not true of you? God will never leave you or forsake you because as we read in Hebrews 7.25, he has also saved us from the wrath of God since he always lives to make intercession for us. Those who think you can forfeit salvation don't realize the eternal ministration of Jesus Christ. Because of his eternal ministrations on my behalf, I am eternally saved. 
If it didn't depend on him fully, I would not be. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 is simply saying, do you have a better deal? Do you have a better covenant to run to, a better high priest whose ministrations you can seek? No matter what it costs you to be a follower of Jesus, it's a better deal to be a follower of Jesus. Don't go back to the old religious ways, the old prideful human ways of living by some code of morals and ethics, which though it may be good, still falls far short of God's unapproachable holiness. Better to cling to Jesus, who said three glorious words, it is finished. It is finished. The work of atonement, covering for sin, is finished. Enter in. Don't leave. Don't turn your back. You've got no better place to go. Jesus is far better. That's the point of chapter 8. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, even beyond words, for what you've done and are doing and will do for one such as us, thank you for graciously allowing us to be part of the new, far better covenant. Thank you for changing us from the inside out. And thank you for promising us that one day we'll be free, not only of the penalty of sin, but even its very presence. We look forward to that day. And until we get there, we're so grateful that you are our advocate and intercessor standing in the gap between us and your Holy Father when we sin. Thank you, O God, for being a far better priest, and please put it within us, therefore, to stay true, not to turn away, not to compromise, for you, Lord Jesus, are by far a better high priest who's mediated a far better covenant. We're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, well, God bless you. Folks, if you haven't gone to the service, I hope you do. We have a guest speaker today, Dr. Jim Richards, who's the executive director of the Southern Baptist of Texas. I think you'll enjoy him, and we will see you next time.